1: Uh, good morning, everybody, and please excuse me for my slightly husky voice. It is an early spring cold or something of that ilk, so I do tend to tail off a little bit. I will try and keep it above above the level of tail off and see how we go from there. You can expect tomorrow to possibly be affected by a general strike, a national shutdown. Now, the shutdown has been organized by the South African Federation of Trade Unions, which is a, a sort of competitor federation to KISATU. And it is to protest worsening socioeconomic conditions for the working class and for marginalized communities. I'm not quite sh- sure if they can, if they speak that much for that many of the either communities, but be it as it may, they are official union structures. But you do have to wonder a little when the trade union, a large trade union federation, organises a strike against poor economic conditions. Now, it's pretty much given that unions don't have as much power over management during poor economic conditions as they may at other times, and that's obviously partly because Management has, just has nothing to give. In this case, one has to assume that it's, it's symbolic because it's really directed against the government and its failed policies, which, um, SAFTU laughingly describes as uh, neoliberal, but then it is a bit sort of bogged down in classical Marxist terminology. So it is symbolic other than the fact, of course, that shutdowns interfere with people's ability to work and we're talking about those fortunate people who actually have a job and who are supporting people who don't have jobs so we it, it's a beautiful exercise in symbolism but not in terms of, of much meeting, much meaning now what SAFTU's has done, which is quite impressive, is it's persuaded its competition COSATU, the Congress of South African Trade Unions, to join it in this national shutdown now Let's bear that, have some thought on that for a moment, because Kasatu is the third arm of the Tripartite Alliance, which is the ANC's governing entity. It's the ANC, South African Communist Party, and Kasatu. And Cosatu can't essentially strike against itself at the same time as having, other than moaned a bit, not really having either any impact on or made any attempt to really change the policy that is bogging this country down in in into an economic quagmire. So I would I I haven't heard any interviews with the KUSATU um guys, but that, that's that's something that happens every now and again and I've never entirely understood it. And to be honest, it either makes a mockery of this actual alliance uh, or it proves that Kassatu is so ineffectual that if I were the ANC and the SACP, I would dump them. But the It also displays another more serious thing, and that is that just because one may be ideologically aligned does not mean that organizations such as political parties, movements, and trade union federations are necessarily aligned in, in their goals and their aspirations. And I think this has been a mistake that is usually made in environments where a socialist dogma Uh, predominates so we will uh, see whether in fact there is any uh, 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 whether it comes to much, whether there is much interruption but you can be sure it will largely be if nothing else a bit annoying to say the very least
0: Hi FM your station of choice since 2008
1: now giving us entertainment for the last six weeks has been the the impeachment hearing into the public protector, Busisiwa Mkwabani. It's been extraordinary for a number of reasons, um, the, some of the nature of the evidence uh, against her, and probably more extraordinary is the extent to which her her counsel, uh, Advocate Dali Mpofu SC, has essentially implicated her or, or buried her on, on, in, in some instances. I have to admit to not sitting through every gory moment. I tend to catch up on the low lights later in the day. But I'd like to, let's have a look at, um, and it's based, this comes from a, an article by Karen Morn written for uh, Daily Maverick. But I'd like to look at the allegation against her that she was on the payroll of the state security agency uh, when she was appointed public protector or in other words, whether she was a quote spy close quote. Now, you may or may not recall that when the interviews were being held for public protector, and essentially it came, she she was sort of the last. She was the shortlist. The only party who did not support her appointment, on the ba- and part of the basis was, I'm sure there was more to it, but, but the serious serious basis was. That she had worked and still was on the payroll of the uh, state uh, state security agency, which is the, ag- the much maligned, appropriately agency that supported Jacob Zuma and pretty much helped him on his rise to infamy, which is to huge shame and discredit of this country. But be that as it may, so the DA opposed her her uh, her, her, her appointment and. If I, as I recall, I think the EFF had, went for the DA on taking that position. But when we look at now, we'll come to some of the issues now. You know, Pips, everyone owes the DA a huge apology uh, for this. Just one of the funny uh, issues that have come out of some of the testimony is that she demanded, Mkhobani, that when she came into a room, her colleagues had to stand up for her. Now, while that may have been Sort of standard practice in offices in the 1950s. To be honest, I have not been in a meeting of colleagues where colleagues come in, a senior, even a senior colleague has come in and required her colleagues to stand up to acknowledge her presence. But the real beauty is that apparently another thing that she demanded was that they don't refer to her by name, but that they refer to her as Madam. Now. I don't know about you, but as, uh, except for occasionally when you go into a, sh- a shop and somebody will greet you and say, Madam, can I help you? Normally, when a woman asks to be referred to as Madam, she is in fact running a brothel. But let's say no more about that. Um, and let's get on to the machinations of the, of the brothel. Now, shortly after she was appointed, she launched a defamation action against uh, the DA's Gl- uh, Glenis Breitenbach about her, uh, her allegations of her being on the payroll of the SSA. And Barney argued that the allegations made were meant to taint her good name and convey to the public that she was not a fit and proper person to be appointed as public protector, and that's why she sued Breitenbach. Well, exactly. The, 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 she makes her own point. Brayden, she argued that Breitenbach's remarks conveyed that she was, quote, not independent as I'm in, in, intricately connected to the state president who is allegedly abusing the state security agency. They also conveyed that my appointment will lead to state capture of the office of the public protector by state president, by the state president, close quote. Well, she's Basically, made uh, Breitenbach's case for her um, because that's that's exactly what uh, that's exactly what appears to have happened. Anyway, in response to all this, the DA's lawyers sought access to several of the documents that she had been referring to in her legal action against Breitenbach, which included information relating to her employment history at the um, State Security Agency. And the litigation went on as people aligned to Zoomer's is want to is is want to be, and eventually the Supreme Court of Appeal ordered her to hand over the that application of her post of analyst at the domestic branch. She didn't, and basically her defamation case has just just remained dormant for one and a half years, and I'm, 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 I'm not sure if it's anywhere now. But it is certainly, while it doesn't appear that it's going to come up in, in court uh, on, her, on, on the basis she would like any time soon, she was, she's now facing charges of misconduct and incompetence over her most politically, politically explosive investigations, acting with bias and apparent dishonesty when dealing with ca- complaints against Sora and Pravin Gordon. Um, she's Accused by contrast of ignoring clear evidence of wrong- wrongdoing against Jacob Zunema's ally, Ace Magashule. He of the uh, Estina Dairy and asbestos cases in the east, uh, in the, in Free State, for which he has at least been charged with the asbestos cases so far. But her, her, her by all accounts, her interference in the Estina case at every level uh, alone would warrant her uh, her, her, her impeachment And it appears that Essentially the state security Agency gained an increasing Foothold over the public Protectors operations which is quite Extraordinary if you think that the Public protector is a, is a Section 9 institution which means mm-hmm. It is an Independent repeat Independent institution but let's just have a look at a couple of, one or two of those instances and, we, and you'll see what, uh, where, where, we're, where we're going on that. The security services gave Mkwabani the wording of her unlawful amendment to the Reserve Bank's mandate. Now, if you remember now, just conclude on this. If you remember, she made a finding against ABSA regarding a loan that was made to a bank that had that had predated The creation of ABSA Was taken over by ABSA And which was made Had been made a loan by the Or essentially been Bailed out by the reserve bank The whole thing was a complete and absolute Debacle and she actually Ordered that An amendment be made to the constitution Which was of course not remotely in her Brief to do so but now and the kicker is that the state security agency created the wording for her unlawful amendment. And just remember that the DA opposed her from the get-go.
0: High FM, 101.9 megahertz of life.
1: Unusual situation. Our guest today is me. And sadly, the reason that it is me is because my guest, um, who is who lives in the Eastern Cape and we're going to deal with issues pertaining to aspects of the Eastern Cape, has had no electricity since Sunday and all her sort of additional resources have been depleted. So she apologized just before coming on air that she wouldn't be able to join us. So what I will do is try and take you through what are the, the issues that, that that we were going to look at, and I, I will sort of be your your guest. So bear with me. Estelle Ellis, who is a journalist with the uh, Daily Maverick, she does investigative reporting for largely in the Eastern Cape and and uh, and and, and neighbouring areas. But she's she's very thorough, and uh almost you get from her writing a, a real a. a, a, a her being really committed to to her subjects. We have had uh, Estelle on the program before when she talked about the uh, water crisis in in the Eastern Cape. What I wanted to discuss with her was some of the hospital crises that are facing the Eastern Cape. Now, obviously, Eastern Cape is by no means the only place where hospitals are in crisis. I mean, hospitals are in crisis in Johannesburg, Tembisa, Katlahong, almost anywhere you you care to name, probably outside the uh, the Western Cape, but there's, there's, a, there's a quality to the sheer disaster of Eastern, of some of the Eastern Cape hospitals that makes as far as I am concerned, makes you realise that the national health insurance simply cannot get off the ground. One of the reasons it can 't is because in terms of the proposed legis- in terms of the legislation In order to qualify as a hospital that can operate as an NHI hospital, certain standards have to be met. And the bottom line is that roughly 83% of South African hospitals do not meet that standard. Now, this suggests that what the government needs to do is what it would need to do without an NHI, and that is fixed hospitals, Staff them properly, give, let them manage their own budgets and put people in charge of managing the hospitals who actually can manage, who can, who will, who can operate within the confines of the provincial department, whatever their rules may be, but has enough certainty, conviction, confidence, courage to do something a little different if it helps the hospital be successful. The hospitals we're going to look at is, they're three hospitals and they, the three hospitals together comprise what they call Gaberka's Livingston Tertiary Hospital. And these hospitals have repeatedly called on the Eastern Cape Department of Health to move to crisis management for its hospitals. And that what's happening is that limited, increasingly limited healthcare is being, is available to give to patients. The hospitals are Livingston Hospital, Port Elizabeth Provincial Hospital, and Dora and Ginza Hospital. Now Dora and Ginza Hospital handles pediatric, obstetric, and gynecologist services. P. Provincial deals with cardiology, ophthalmology, pediatric, oncology, hematology, cardiology, ear, nose, and throat specialist services, and urology and cardiothoracic sur- sur- surgery. And Livingston, Ho- Livingston Hospital essentially handles the rest of the specialist services, including accident and emergency units and emergency psychiatric services. And this together is the Livingston Tertiary Hospital. Now, you can see from the list I've just read out that the services they provided are very much tertiary hospital services, in other words, sophisticated services that pertain to varieties of operations and and care that you cannot get at, simply will not get at a primary or secondary level. They are... Bonafide, serious, um, sophisticated hospitals. Now, the hospital serves, this group, we'll call it the hospital, serves a large part of the Eastern Cape. It stretches to the Karoo and along the Eastern Cape coastline. And so there are about 2.5 million people in the health districts that are served by the Livington Hospital. But some of its special specialist serv- special services are the only ones available for the entire Eastern Cape Province of 7 million people. One observation, one one doctor's observation is that literally people patients will die waiting for ICU beds. A, cru, a crucial problem is nursing shortages, which means less time for observation, medicine administrations and patient cares. And as a consequence, very often medication errors are plentiful, patients are neglected, and what they call adverse events, are common. However, and this is a refrain we hear very often, the Eastern Cape community, this hospital, has not had a permanent CEO since 2018, just a series of acting CEOs. Now, this this scenario in our government of people holding holding acting CEO positions, which are Unstable, uncertain, and they're temporary and become ex- almost permanent. So there's a lot of instability around it. cannot help the crisis at all. But eventually, in, in 2020, a senior director, a Dr. Doc- a Kramlashe, um, uh, was sent down from Bisho to manage things. And this had happened because the hospital, the hospital CEO, who was appointed in 2018, to Laini Madunsele, who was headhunted, his entire management team, he and his team were run out of the hospital by unions after more than a 100 theft cases were opened against staff members at the hospital. And although this suspension was declared unlawful at a hearing, most of the staff, including Madame Sela, resigned. Now, for me, this is one of the most unbelievably disturbing uh, comments I have seen, and I would like to find out more about it, and I'll speak to you still about it, because in very many instances, the unions, some of the unions in this country are nothing but destructive. Because, of course, if a, if a half-decent CEO joins a hospital, they are going to find out what is going wrong. And they are probably going to find hundreds if not thousands of instances of theft. And the way you deal with it, unfortunately, is the majority will end up being dismissed for theft because it's serious, serious misconduct. Now, while the union members, while the union officials are entitled to protect their members in the sense of supporting them in disciplinary hearings and and such like, it sounds like from here that there were threats and probably some very serious threats, and that it is the union that must it must be brought to light and must receive the opprobrium in the media that it or they deserve, because of course. What you end up back in is back to square one. The thieves and the no, no nicks remain. Nothing is resolved. Situation gets worse. Doctors apparently complained of encountering an increasingly aggressive workplace and this would have, this came from above and from the staff that they work for. They describe the situation at Livingston Hospital as dire. It's a mixture of budget shortages and bureaucratic inefficiency and has resulted in every department being stripped of the tools needed to do the most basic jobs the result is poor working conditions staff burnout and frustration infrastructure failure equipment shortages and we've heard a lot about that in other cases medication shortages long waiting lists and up to and ultimately suboptimal undignified patient care with a high chance of future litigation. The, they complain, and, and one just shudders to imagine the major inefficiencies that are driven by passive-aggressive and often overtly aggressive behavior. Now, I think this is probably, this is one of those big problems that occur in public hospitals, and it can occur workplaces, if not addressed, in general. And that is when There's tension between senior senior staff and and subordinate staff, particularly, and hospitals would be typical of that. You'd have doctors on one level, nurses on not quite the same level, and if if these tensions are not managed, and if misconduct by any party is not suitably dealt with, it's it becomes stasis occurs and things become ever inefficient. So you're dealing with what sounds like an environment that is just pure, pure hell. And, of course, what's happened is highly trained specialists, heads of department, have left or or are leaving. They've had enough. They can't do it anymore. The problem is, as far as I recall, and I do stand open to correction, something like budgets. While a a hospital may put forward a draft budget for, for its requirements each year, that budget is amalgamated into a provincial health budget. And the consequence is that the hospital itself doesn't necessarily get what it needs. It gets what the, the province has decided it will allocate. So very often uh, one hospital should be, be short of, say, dysprin, another the hospital will have an overload of dysprin. So it's that uh, managing from above, managing at a centralized level that, as usual, takes its toll. And when you add to that... Poor management, and there has to be poor management here. Poor management, uh, the inability to control an environment, the inability to stamp authority on the environment, things go desperately wrong. Now, the health department has blamed its challenges on limited budgets. So presumably the health department is saying whatever they get from national is too little. That I'm not sure of, I think... Um, a lot could be done with not enough if it's done properly. And medico-legal claims. Now, the I'll come back to the medical-legal claims in a while, because this is like a, 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 a the seventh circle of hell, but we'll, we'll come back from that. COVID-19 in itself uh, left a number of staff with pr- uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. They have left, and they haven't been replaced. The casualty unit has been operating without an area manager and operational ma- manager, both retired and were not replaced. The highly skilled and much sought-after head of emergency medicine resigned and emigrated, who can blame them. And management has has been warned of multiple adverse events and unavoidable deaths in the accident and emergency unit, but that, that's all that's happened. They've been advised of it by the doctors, nothing's happened. They don't have life-saving equipment like ECG machines. Uh, porters apparently are, which are who are highly unionised, are seldom available. So the doctors and nurses end up wheeling patients to and from wards, which obviously makes no efficiency sense. And they were simply refusing to move respiratory patients or those who are awaiting COVID nineteen test results. Now they work in hospitals. Damn it! No cleaning is done in the emergency department on a Sunday. Bins are not cleared for days. There remains a dire shortage of linen in all departments, and we know that that's been a traditionally a major source of theft. The CT scanner in the emergency unit has been broken since 2020 and has never been replaced. The X-ray machine is not working. There have been multiple assaults on staff members and patients in the 72-hour emergency holding facility for psychiatric patients, and patients must now remain in casualty for 10 days awaiting a bed. There's a backlog, naturally, of theatre cases, a dearth of anaesthetists, all aggravated by nursing and linen shortages, as previously mentioned, and the number of beds in ICUs has been reduced. There's no oncology trained nurse and the chief radiation therapist post has not been filled for two years. 800 patients have to wait for between 10 to 12 months for radiotherapy. Well, can, one can only imagine what the consequence of that may well be. I think that, that regards the sort of adverse um, events category. A bid for a new radiotherapy machine has been cancelled and the one currently in use switches off due to power dips at the hospital and takes 15 minutes to warm up again. So, it's, 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 it is a litany, but I think it's worth going through just to get a sense of how they've become islands of, of the unmanaged. porters are not available in the oncology ward. So what happens is that if patients are moved to another part of the hospital, they have to be wheeled through the parking lot because an access door has been broken and instead of being fixed, it's been padlocked. There are no first-line drugs for chemotherapy and desperately needed drugs are not available because, they, because they're not paid for. And parts of the hospital, hospital the infrastructure, the actual building, aren't safe. And so uh, it, it just it just goes it just goes on and on. I mean it 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 is. And listen, and and what is the the department's uh, complaint about it is that the reason it has no money for any of these things is because of the large number of le- medical legal claims it faces. Now, I would have thought that one of the problems with uh, medical legal t- claims is that if you have them, you end up paying out money. And the more money you pay out, the less money if you ha- you haven't budgeted for them, which is the problem in this case. The more money you take from your services to pay for more medical legal claims, and so you get this sort of it's al- it's almost like the ex- the the explosion of a sun. You know, it gets larger and larger and larger until I'm not sure what happens. Um, maybe you get an explosion of a sun, and then the whole system becomes a black hole. The province apparently is facing a staggering. 38 billion rand in contingent liabilities, and although Treasury has instructed the province to to cater in its budgeting for contingent liabilities, that it is allowed to do so, that it may do so, that so that its services don't collapse and lead to more contingent, contingent liabilities, Treasury has said to the uh, has said to the province, cater for. Make a provision for your 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 uh, higher continued liabilities so that you don't draw away from the functioning of the system. And this hasn't been done. It just remains the reason why nothing gets done. So above all, these liabilities remain to be constituted as financial mismanagement. Surprise, surprise. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Just a little bit on the uh, response of the Department of Health. In other words, the Blinjandrums who sit in, I don't know where they sit, one, Sianda Manana, who is the Eastern Cape Department of Health's Communications Director. I mean, I, I don't think, I don't know if this is communications, I think this is this is a poorly disguised propaganda. He said that The department was able to run the Livingston Tertiary Hospital in a safe way. Well, he didn't, he hasn't gone on to explain how it can be done given the, the dire circumstances. He also said that the acting CEO had not received any letters from doctors expressing their concern. Now, all that we've gone through in the last few minutes has been drawn from letters doctors have sent to their CEO about what's going on. He well, he, he acknowledges that people have, lot, have been left and, have left and have not necessarily been replaced. They are recruiting more people. They have received applications. Um, and, and, you know, basically all, all would be well, possibly well. Um, he, he, he said that services are running through the clinical manager who is a neurologist. Now, I would thought in that circumstances there is no way a neurologist can be running a neurology department and be acting as clinical manager for three hospitals that serve between two and five million people. But you know that's that's what comes on from high, and that's probably how they delude themselves into believing something is happening. He did he did confirm that the supply chain manager had been suspended because he's under investigation. But the matter is such, UDK, and cannot be talked about. I wonder if the supply chain manager is responsible for the three different linen cleaning services that they have outsourced. Um, I I haven't seen a comment on that, but when you see linen, you see outsourcing, you see three contractors, your your antennae have got to go up. He said that despite admitting that the supervision of the porters was, was lacking, the porters were working. I mean, you, you do have to wonder, you know, if, if if doctors are leaving and are so desperate, and services are literally crumbling into the ground, you cannot you cannot say as as the civil service sitting up on the hill who's supposed to be responsible for making sure these these environments hold together that things are happening where doctors say they're not happening. That just smacks. Of two things. One is he's obviously lying and the other point is that he's, he's, he's lying and he's not very good at it. It's just a, a desperate attempt to somehow make it look like things are not as bad as they look and you're going to believe me when doctors have repeatedly been writing letters to the superiors saying that it is a, 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 a disastrous situation. The, one of the things, and I won't go into great length about it because that sort of deals with the Livingston Hospital Complex, but there are a variety of other issues that face hospitals, particularly in the environment and and uh, largely rural environment of, of parts of the Eastern Cape, and that is for example, Zitulele, which you may have heard about in the news, but it had developed an effective way of working. They were, They were cooperating with a A clinic that was operating in the area, doctors. It it seems to have worked well, and as one doctor said, it takes time to gain trust of the community that you operate in a certain way and actually service the community effectively. Then, of course, what happens is a is a new CEO retires and a new CEO is brought in, and she does things according by absolutely by the book according to what the panjandrum's in the Department of Health order her to do. So a whole lot of things were changed, and the system has, com- has completely broken down. She has come into a situation without having the sensitivity or the nouns to realize, listen to what the people on the ground are saying, your doctors, how they've devised the system, and, and what they are going to do. What needs to be done to keep the system alive and to keep the trust of the community. And the System is starting to fall apart. I've always said that if you want to look at the crisis in any organization, be it in the private sector or the public sector, you look to management. Management is responsible for the success and management is responsible for failure. That's what you have to look at. And by all accounts, the quality of the management in the Eastern Cape Health Department Disintegrates on the, on the ground and it disintegrates in the hallowed halls of the public service. So my final point on that is that you cannot create a unbelievably unaffordably expensive national health insurance scheme which require, which will involve the amalgamation of private health and public health when the fundamentals are not working in most of the public hospitals of this country, so I, I'd like to say that I don't think it will happen, but I think we have to accept the fact that they will probably try. But there is so much money involved; they will not, they cannot possibly get it off the ground given our financial constraints. And if that's good, if that's if that's good news, well, um, well and good. On a, on a on a different note, but also financially related, the uh, acting director general of the national treasury, uh, Ismail Mamoniat says that preferential procurement has applied in a way that has produced irrational outcomes that are costing the economy. Now that's telling us something we didn't already know. He said in 2017, new regulations on prevent, preferential, preferential procurement said that all contracts above 30 million should contain a local subcontract Tracting element of 30% Where feasible The regulations also made it Possible for state entities To set aside a portion Of contracts for specific groups Previously disadvantaged By apartheid Now The preferential procurement Supposedly has its roots in the constitution Which says that while public, Public procurement Must be competitive and cost effective And cost reflective it can also be used to empower previously disadvantaged groups. The problem is and and we know it it's, it's that those rules of preferential procurement that require a local content that have driven have driven cadre rate deployment card rate deployment has often resulted in these contracts being awarded to people who are just middle uh, sort of midmen, middlemen men who sort, who give the contracts i 'll take a cut and then get a, uh, companies to do the work who can't either do the work or actually just don't do the work. And the problem with using local suppliers is you end up having what we are becoming increasingly and horrifically used to, and that is mafiosi, construction mafiosi. The um, read of one... I mean, I think they're now, now seeing the establishment, although it's not in the public sector per se, of the, the growth, the the... the, the Taxi industry, in many respects, has become that, uh, that, that mafiosi. And I read about, sorry, I've now forgotten, but there was another one that came to mind. And essentially what you have is guys who get local groups of locals to sort of create an entity and they then go to a building site or a similar operation and demand 30% of whatever this site produces. They don't offer anything in return and they don't even offer sort of locals who are capable of doing the job. It's essentially extortion money. It's essentially a protection racket. And it's followed up with threats, with, with guns, probably with murders. I wouldn't be surprised. And it's expanding because of course we, we, the, the biggest vacuum we have is effective law enforcement. So these guys operate business the, the easy way. And just demand of hard-working legitimate businesses that they hand over their profits and that's what prefer- preferential procurement has brought us amongst other things
0: hi FM, your station of choice since 2008
1: I just thought I'd go back to the public protector uh, for this last uh, segment um just to give you an idea of Kind of, oh, how bad it was. How bad it it was in her links to the ISA. I mean, there's no doubt she was employed by the ISA. I mean, this is this is what happened. The, in, during testimony, the former public protector, security head, one uh, Baldwin Nishunzi, revealed that he had sought the secret services' assistance in developing a proper case management system. Now, you know. Why you would want the secret services to develop a case management system which presumably they would fund they would develop a way to have access to is open to question um, He believed in his defence that the agency had the required expertise as they were custodians of information in the state. Well, you may describe them as custodians of information in the state. I would probably describe them as a sleaziest bunch of operatives in government, and that is saying something. The Public Protector's Office claimed that the SSA, it was the SSA who had offered to develop the system for, for the Public Protector um, after raising cur- security concerns about a developer who would agreed to assist on a pro bono basis. Now, I would agree that one should have doubts about a developer who should offer to, to act on a pro bono basis, for a Section Nine institution, which is reasonably well funded, if not t- totally well funded, but really, so you have these two different versions of Who offered? Who was asked why and what? And um, it, basically, the, what 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 the uh, uh, public protector had done had approached a system developer who had assist, assisted an international counterpart with the development of a similar system on a pro bono basis. He agreed to assist the the public protector under similar conditions, but there were concerns about the security of the system. Now I would use a, a more expletive term, but I'll just say, if, no kidding, no kidding. In this sort of mushmash of 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 situation, it was then resolved that both the system and its developer would be vetted by the secret services, and they did so. And then their security concerns arose. And that's when they offered to develop the system for the public, for the private, public protector. But in fact, fortunately, this was not pursued any further. And by all accounts, ultimately, Parliament kicked it out altogether. It's, you know, it's, it's another one of those things that when it comes to examination, it's, it's, it's too bizarre to be believable that we could actually end up in this, in this situation. And, you know, when, 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 when your largest opposition party opposes the appointment of someone to as important a position as this, and yet somebody as, as arrogant, as arrogant, as blind, as stupid, and as compromised as someone like Bus- and Nkabani gets the position, then you have to assume that it was a stitch up under the Zuma regime and nothing but, and that is not even going into all the details of all the cases she lost and all the idiotic comments that she made. But this is what the Zuma era bequeathed to us and the, the tragedy is that the ANC has never been able to get us out from under it because although it, what it may, what may have continued to happen wasn't as obviously underhand as this. It, it, And that's understating it. It is in the DNA of the ANC they cannot get out of this, and that's why policies get announced repeatedly and repeatedly, and they're not implemented, A, because they can't, and B, because they are ideologically uninclined. Well, that was uh, the Tuesday edition of Dishonesty and Mayhem, and perhaps the good news is that, you know, and, and it does, and it is the situation is that the private sector often makes up for where the public sector fails, but there is a lot of making up to do, and uh, the government sh- the, no excuses can be accepted. And twenty twenty four had better be a real fight. See you next week.